after Apostle Robert gives us the prayer for today. I hope that you all again are doing well and Apostle is going to lead us in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this amazing, powerful, uh, magnificent day. We uh, thank you, Lord, for how you are just beautifying this fall season with beautiful temperatures, uh, beautiful leaves, and times of transition, oh God. So God, even as you said in our heart this morning that this is a time of fresh wind, we thank you, Lord, for the fresh wind that is coming into our lives to blow away that which needs not be there and so that we can have space for new things, Lord. Bless the teacher today, oh God, our prophet Shante, and every hearer of the word today that will be encouraged and empowered and strengthened to do greater things for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray and declare. Amen. Amen. Again, welcome, and I pray that you are doing well. Your household is doing well. Um, we know that there is a lot going on in the world, and even in the midst of all of that, the Lord still has a message to give to his people. Uh, we know and we also encourage that you have that relationship with God to hear for yourself. But we also know that God gives gifts to the body to enhance what we are already doing, right? And the, and the seeking that should already be happening in our own lives. So the message that we have is a continuation of a series that we're doing for this month into the month of December. And the series is titled The Teacher. Now, last Sunday, as we began to open up this uh, message, I'm not going to go back through everything, but I am going to just review a few things to tie into today. So the Lord gave us a, a prophetic word and he talked about how teachers are called to be voices of truth in the age of falsehood. And the more that we continue in this age that we're in, the more people are waking up to how many falsehoods have really been put out into the world, right? People want to hear the truth. They want to know the truth. Um, they don't want to be deceived. And I find that, I don't know about you, but I find that to be very encouraging um, in this hour. And he talked about how in order to reach for him, that we have to leave the comfort zones behind, right? that we have to seek God and that the seeking right now is a mobility that has to come in your mind, that you've got to change your mindset, right? He asked the question uh, last Sunday, we asked the question, is your mindset ready to move? Is your mindset mobile and global or are you stuck in a certain mode of thinking? Because when we get new information, that information begins to transform our mind. It begins to take us out of the places of stagnancy, out of the places of inconsistency and walks us into a place of faithfulness to where we're able to move and go forward in the purpose that God has set for us. We talked last time about how teaching has a penalty attached because teaching is something that should be taken seriously. Um, taking what you know and sharing what you know can literally transform somebody's mind and it can transform it in a positive way or a negative way, depending on what we are releasing into the world. 
And so that's why it's important for us if we are teaching anything to make sure that we are as much as life within us teaching the truth, right? And not deliberately or intentionally deceiving people. So we talked about how teachers are judged harshly because doctrine and beliefs form a society and culture and it drives decisions or inactions of kings and presidents. Believe it or not, kings and presidents are moved by Mm -hmm. what they know. They're moved by intel. Okay, so I'll give you a little... A little lingo there. They're moved by the intelligence that they receive, right? And if that intelligence or that doctrine or that teaching or that information is wrong, it can be the undoing of a nation. It can be the undoing of a people. It can start unnecessary wars if they get the wrong intelligence. And so it is It is a very important, the job of People who deliver and disseminate knowledge, which is what one of the main goals of a teacher is. We talked about how education means that we are leading someone out of ignorance. We're helping people to draw out or to develop their intelligence from within. That's what an educator does. A teacher will show you something. They will present you something. They will point out something. But an educator will draw out of you what is inherently in you. And then we began to talk about the didactic or the parabolic teacher. And we're going to get into uh, today Jesus, the methodologist. Now, there are different kinds of teachers. Okay, so I'm going to run through really quickly. The kinds of teachers there are, I'm sure somebody else will come behind me and add to it. It's okay. But there is a prophetic teacher. This is the person who speaks as an oracle. This is a person, uh, the prophetic means to come before or to get before or to get ahead of a thing. So a prophetic teacher speaks as an oracle of God. They are able to get before or get ahead of a of a thing, they have some foresight and some insight into something that's about to go down. And a prophetic teacher will give you strategy and structure and tools to help you deal with what is to come. Prophetic teachers give definition to what is happening in the earth. Sometimes they will interpret signs and symbols and wonders as God shows them. So that's a prophetic teacher. Okay, obviously there's more to it than that, but I'm giving you a general rundown. Then there is the shepherding teacher. A shepherd's job is to fend and to tend and to guard and to protect. So a shepherding teacher is one who fends off wolves. It fends, they fend off things that come to devour the people of God. They fend off doctrine that comes to devour you with falsehoods and lies. That is a shepherding teacher. They tend to the wounded and they nourish the people of God. They guard you against being led astray and they protect you from harmful doctrines. A shepherding teacher may, of course, feel a lot nurturing, a lot more nurturing than, say, a prophetic teacher. Okay, then you have an evangelistic teacher. 
This is one that announces the good news. The majority of their messaging and teaching is about the good news of God. Their doctrine is focused on the good news of the gospel. They are concerned about deliverance. They are concerned about solutions. So an evangelistic teacher is going to, the majority of what they minister is going to be centered around the good news of Christ. It's going to be centered around solutions. So if you are bringing an evangelistic teacher all of your issues, <laughs> expect an evangelistic teacher to look to go straight to the issue and offer you solutions. Okay. And then you have the apostolic teacher. They are bringing the faith and an apostle actually brings the faith to a new people or a new region. Again, an apostolic teacher, you will know the difference because they are bringing the faith to a new people or a new region. They are the chief advocates of a new principle or a new system. So apostolic teachers come to bring new systems and processes to a new people or to a new region. If you find yourself in the company of an apostolic teacher, you're probably going to be saying this a lot. <laughs> I've never heard that before. I've never heard it in that way. I've never seen it done that way, but that's because they're an apostolic teacher and they're called to help build new systems. And many times to deconstruct systems that no longer work. And of course, Apostles face opposition because of that deconstruction process that is often, excuse me, going on. So we're going to see Jesus today. We're going to see him in apostolic teaching mode. A lot of times what we're going to be reading today, Jesus says, it is said, but I say to you, that's an apostolic teaching. Here's what is said. Here's the old. Here's the structure you've been under. But I say to you, here's the new system coming. And here we are over 2000 years later, and some people still want the old system. <laughs> and then, of course, there is the false teacher. The false teacher or to be false is to be intentionally untrue. A lot of times we are unfortunately labeling people who may get something wrong or misinterpret something and people just automatically put a label on them and say, oh, that's a false teacher. No, a false teacher is one who is intentionally untrue. The word false comes from the old French word false, F-A-U-S, which means fake, Incorrect, mistaken, treacherous, deceitful, erroneous, and false also means to disappoint. Remember, we talked last time about the word to disappoint. So when a false teacher comes in or a teacher that disappoints you by their teachings, what they're essentially doing is they're removing your appointment. 
Disappoint again means to remove from appointment. So when you hear a false teacher, someone who's coming at you with something that's intentionally untrue, the goal of it is, is to remove your appointment, remove you out of positioning with God by what falsehood they are trying to get you to buy into. So a false teacher dispossesses you of your appointed office in God. What is our appointed office in God? We're kings and priests. We're of a royal priesthood. We are justified by God. We are under grace. We are saved by grace, not through our works. So if a false teacher comes, what they're doing is they're dispossessing you of the grace of God. That God has already set for you and appointed for you in this life. They're actually reversing your position in God. God told you you were free, but a false teacher comes to rebind you. And we don't want that. (laughs) And so last Sunday we ended by talking about the litmus test for our voice and the importance of our speech. And we talked about the think litmus test is what we're saying gracious and is it preserving life? We have a responsibility as teachers to say that which is gracious and to say and to teach that which preserves life. So we said, we got to think about it. Is what I'm about to say true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Now, Jesus, the master methodologist. As we said, Jesus is the consummate teacher. He is the ultimate teacher. He fulfills all of those other roles of teaching except the false. He is apostolic. He is prophetic. He is evangelistic. He's a shepherding teacher. And as I began to look at this word that the Holy Spirit said to me about Jesus, he said, I want you to share with them about Jesus's method of teaching. He was the master methodologist. And as I looked at that word, um, the saying, there's a method to my madness came to my mind. And I found out that it was from Hamlet by written by Shakespeare of the character, Lord Polonius. He said, though this be madness, yet there is method in it. And I, I thought that was, very apropos for how people looked at Christ when he came into the earth. People thought he was mad in some cases, but there was a method to how Christ was sharing the truth, how he was bringing in this new system that we as believers today operate under. And so the Lord took me back to Jesus's very first teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. Now the Sermon on the Mount is quite long. We're not going to go through every single verse. We're going to pull out some things, but I encourage you to take this week, this coming week to read through the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5 all the way through Matthew 7. And so this Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus lays out several principles for life. We often hear people say, well, we don't quite know what Jesus would have wanted, or we don't quite know what Jesus was thinking, but there's an entire sermon 
<laughs> of life principles that Jesus lays out. And it's the very first sermon he delivers to his disciples, to those who say, we are going to follow you. Jesus didn't just let them go around willy nilly saying that, oh, I'm a, I'm a disciple of Christ. No, he laid out some foundational principles and teachings for life. Matthew five, verse one and two, it says, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them saying, when Jesus saw the crowds, keep in mind, he went up, not out. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up and not down into the crowds. Just a little something there for the preachers. Um, he had to elevate his own perspective. Jesus' eyes did not remain on the crowd. He saw the crowd, but he went up. So the crowd hears Jesus, but they don't get a close range with Jesus. He saw the crowd. He went up. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. The crowd remained where they were. The disciples drew closer. Hello, disciples. Okay. So the crowd gets to lean in and overhear this teaching while the disciples draw near to him and they're hearing it at close range. We know that mountains provide stability and it provided a viewpoint, right? So Jesus takes his seat. He's not standing, but he's being seated as kings often do. <laughs> and his disciples come to him and he begins to teach them. And we know that the crowd benefits from this teaching because of his elevated position. We know that his voice is echoing. And they're getting part of this teaching, but it's not up close. Jesus launches into what we call the moral teachings that are supposed to govern his disciples. There are at least, this is the first of the fifth discourse in Matthew that Christ gives. So this takes place early in his ministry. This takes place after Christ's water baptism this takes place after his fasting and his spiritual retreat and his testing from the enemy. So even Jesus has a personal process before his own ministry launch. Hello, disciples. I'm talking to you today. <laughs> so this sermon is the longest continuous discourse of Christ found in the New Testament. And yet many people have not read it. It contains the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer, and it is considered the central tenets of discipleship. How are you a disciple and you don't know the central tenets of discipleship? Okay. Yet people frequently claim that Jesus didn't really leave any specific instructions or rather the reality is he left instructions that people don't like. Mm. 
He left instructions that don't fit the lust of our flesh and the pride of life. He left instructions that sometimes people don't desire to read because to read them is to be accountable for what you know. Okay. So in Matthew five, and again, I'm going to give you synopsis through, I'm not read. We're not going to read every single verse in Matthew five, one through 12, Christ tells us how happiness is achieved. He tells us who is blessed and why they are blessed. He gives us the ideas of love and gentleness versus force and love and lording over other people. He presents us the highest ideals on spirituality and compassion. In Matthew 5 verses 13 through 16, He compares us to salt and light. He tells us what our value to the world is, that we are to be salt, we are to be preservative, and we are to be light. We are to emanate. That our good works would actually give glory to God. In Matthew 5, verses 17 uh, 17 through 48, excuse me, This is where Jesus begins to lay out what we call his apostolic teaching. He says, you have heard, but I say it is this apostolic teacher who takes over. It is the chief advocate of a a new principle or system. He's trying to give to a new people and to a new region. He begins to say things like verse 17, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So if Christ came to fulfill, then we are supposed to be walking in what Christ has designed and told us to do. We're not going back to try to fulfill what he said he's already fulfilled. He also says, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So right there, he's letting you know he's instituting a system that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees and their code and standards of righteousness. And you can only surpass it in Christ. So he lays out where murder begins. He tells them murder begins in the heart. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. He's saying murder begins with anger. You got to deal with the seed. Before it gets into your heart and takes root in your heart and produces the fruit of murder. Just one thing 
out of that apostolic teaching there. So Jesus tells us here that he fulfills the old covenant. The old covenant, he begins to express by telling them, you have heard. Here's what you've heard. But it's new covenant, he says, but I say to you. But I say to you. In Matthew 6, he continues on. He begins to tell and lay out for the disciples how to give and how to do good. How to give. Give from the heart. (laughs) How to do good. Don't do it for recognition. He lays out how to give alms, how to pray, how to fast. Don't be superficial. Don't be material driven. So if you want instructions on how to give, how to pray, how to fast, how loosely you're supposed to hold on to the materials of this life, it's all in Matthew 6. In Matthew 7, Jesus begins by talking about not judging hypocritically. I know that people take that whole Matthew 7, the first six verses, or even the first two, and they just say, oh, you shouldn't judge. But if you keep reading, he's actually talking about not judging things hypocritically. Don't judge something that you yourself are guilty of, that you yourself are not doing. He talks about being persistent in seeking God in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 12. To don't just stop, but to continue to persist in your seeking of God. And he ends Matthew 7 by telling us to watch out for the false prophets, to watch out for false fruit, to watch out for false piety. Our intimacy, he wants us to understand, our intimacy is not based on our works. It's based on our knowing of him. So in all of this, Jesus is getting the disciples' foundation together. He's laying out the tenets of his disciples, what they are supposed to live by, how they are supposed to operate. This sermon represents what what is called the bedrock of Christ's ethics. And at the end of it in verse 28 and 29 of Matthew 7, it says the crowds were astonished because he taught as one having authority. To sum up what Christ is saying in here, if you go back to Matthew 5 and 48, he says, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Now that word there, perfect, does not mean without fault. It's the word telios, T-E-L-I-O-S, which means the end or the destination. He's saying, here's how you get to the destination. 
And what's the destination? Returning to the one who sent us. How do we get back to our father? By doing these principles, by living out these tenets, this is how you get back to him. So it is the ethics of the kingdom. This was the first thing that Christ outlines to those who would claim to follow him. There's an emphasis on the purity of heart, the purity of mind, the purity of body, and the standard of Christian righteousness. Mm -hmm. The world has their standard. We know the world has their standard, but our standard is found right here. So I call this the Christian lifestyle specs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Is your life aligned to Christ's specifications or are they aligned to your own specs? And we have to ask ourselves who has okayed or greenlit in our life what Christ has not. So we say we are believers, our ethics ought to align with what Christ has already said. Martin Luther called these ethics that Christ laid out, he called them the impossible demand, (laughs) but that it was the lifetime aim that we should press toward the mark of this Christ ethic that was laid out. And so we approach our life daily with the goal in mind of aligning our life with the Christ ethic. So Christ was the great methodologist. And I want to talk about the nine methods of Christ in his teachings. First of all, as they laid out here, After he got done teaching, the people were astonished and they said he taught as one having great authority. So his first method was his authority. Jesus does not borrow authority. He is the authority on matters of the law. You have heard it said, but I tell you, he is the word. Realize that when Christ came, they were forever trying to correct the very word himself. The scribes and the Pharisees were actually trying to correct the word, the living word, the eternal word, and tell him what he meant. (laughs) They were trying to interpret him. And because of these misinterpreters standing between God and man, making a mess for eons, Jesus becomes the word made flesh and dwells among us to show us the word in life, in practice, in action. All authority in heaven and in earth was given to him. And so if you don't receive Jesus, you're invalidating the words effect on your own life. If you say, I don't receive him, you are in essence saying, I don't receive the word. Hence, there are people who are still in bondage because they refuse to receive Christ. They refuse to receive the living word. 
They are still under the old covenant. They are still in bondage with the rabbis and pharisaical interpretations Mm. because they did not receive the Christ who came to set them free. The second method that Christ used was parabolic teaching. He would often use object lessons and he would pull spiritual truth from everyday life. Jesus was able to connect with the farmer, the common man, the agrarian society that they lived in at the time. And he would tell stories and use everyday life to teach spiritual truths. The third method of Christ was hyperbole. Believe it or not, (laughs) Jesus would have been the first, what we call today, the first shock jock. He used the shocking factor, outrageous examples or statements that were not meant to be taken literally, though over centuries people did just that. He would talk about things like ripping out your eye, cutting off your hand if it offended you. He would talk about people with logs in their eyes. These were attention-grabbing statements. They were a form of hyperbole. The fourth method that Jesus used to teach would have been something that I love, which is memorable sayings, idioms, quips, acronyms. Jesus spoke poetically and often had plays on words. In your teaching and sharing with others, remember that if they remember, it will stick with them. Jesus' fifth method of teaching was asking questions. These were designed for critical thinking. Jesus led listeners to conclusions by asking questions. In total, throughout scripture, Jesus asked 173 questions. He also used questions to teach the hostile. The sixth method of Jesus' teachings, another one that I love, Jesus used visuals and illustrations. He used object lessons. He washed the feet of the disciples to teach them about servant leadership. He called a child to him to discuss faith. He wrote in the sand to address hypocrisy. He visually communicated the truth. And we know that the more senses that we engage in learning, the better that we retain what is being said. Another one of Christ's methods of teaching was repetition. He taught the same major themes again and again. He traveled from place to place, teaching people that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that they needed to repent. He taught them over and over again about his death and resurrection. Repetition, we know, builds an uh, emphasis 
increases our memory. What gets repeated gets remembered. So think about that as you are sharing and as you are teaching. The eighth method of Jesus, he created experiences. We know now that the world is opening up and people are talking about things like artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, and now meta worlds or layers of reality. So Jesus was creating experiences wherever he went. Jesus sent his disciples out to do the work and to report back. He didn't just talk to them, but he sent them out and said, I want you to do the work. Jesus gave calls to action. He told the rich young ruler to sell all you have and give to the poor. Caveat there, he didn't say sell all you have and give all you have to the poor. He said sell all you have and give to the poor. But we often insert all, just like the rich young ruler did. So providing people the opportunity to practice what they hear and to practice the teachings is what Christ did. And finally, the most effective method of Christ He practiced what he preached. He had dinner with the sinners. He taught people to love. He withdrew to pray. He didn't just teach on prayer. He withdrew to pray. He rested. He didn't just tell them to rest in God and have faith, but Jesus went to sleep. Our lives are a living epistle And the question is, if you closed your mouth today, could your life still tell the story? If you could no longer speak, would your actions, would your methods, would your life align with the ethics of Christ that people would know that you are one of his? And so as I close today, I encourage you to use the methods of Christ. I encourage you to preach, to teach, to shock, to craft memory in your words, to paint the picture for people, to repeat the truth of God, to create experiences, to live out what you teach. Combined, your discipleship for Christ will last. Amen. So at this time, I want to turn it over to Apostle. I'm smiling big right now. Hallelujah. Thank God for this, this, this great word that was shared with us. It's very powerful. Ah, um, <clears throat> God bless everyone there. Uh, we thank God for it. I'll tell you one thing. My father, um, 
was really a blessed man because he did what he could, even with his well-known and well-expressed uh, shortcomings that he had. He knew he had shortcomings, but one thing my father really instilled in our life is was one, number one, is to study so that you can teach people by your example and by your words. And when I hear this message here, the, the teacher, the power of the teacher, and how the teachers inform the top leaders of nations. Why it's so important for us to have sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. You can get no more sound than the Sermon on the Mount. If you use the Sermon on the Mount, see what happens is, uh, in, our, in the design field, we have this thing called the conceptual... Uh, they call it a party, is what they call it. But it's like the core essence of what it is that you're building upon. Okay, so when people see the like, it's like the the bones or essence or the the very uh, initial sketch or the diagram the diagram that helps you to get the big picture. Well, Christ is the party. Okay, he is the one that has that example, the bones, the structure on how we build. Our teaching life, okay? Because when you look at these examples that he had, particularly when Prophet Shante went over the ninth examples, one, having authority. You cannot be a teacher and not sure about what you're talking about. And we operate on his authority. Mm-hmm. We operate on the authority of Christ, not our own minds or our own opinions or our own organizations. You know, <laughs> we teach upon the authority of Christ. And when you do that, you are standing on rock solid ground. I mean, look at object lessons, shock factor, you know, memorable sayings, questions, visuals, repetition, experience, and practicing what he's talked about. Like my dad, he was very, you know, uh, emphatic about practice what you preach. Christ did what he was talking about. In my life and career, even in in my professional career, so many people would not believe (laughs) what I did. But when they saw what I was capable of doing, it put them in place. So people can talk a good game. In religious circles, people talk you to kingdom come. (laughs) But they are not practicing or applying what they're teaching about in their own personal lives. That's one thing my dad was very powerful about. He's like, you have got to know what it is you are talking about and you must live what you preach. When you live what you preach, people will see the value and the sincerity of your life and take you as something serious. Not as a fad or a fluke or a cultural icon. Because there's even cultural icons out there, been there for 30, 40 years that people don't respect. They just go with the culture to respect, you know, to to um, accept them because, oh, that's who's out there out front. But we have to understand, we got to take on the perfection of Christ. Getting to the end result of what he's talking to us about. I love visuals. I mean, one matter of fact, as far as the visuals, 
I would not be in, probably would not be in ministry today if it wasn't for me taking the apostolic move before I even knew what that was to bring visuals into teaching. Like Prophet Shante, I'll go real quickly, just a real quick testimony. When we had an evangelistic service, we had leaders and, and teachers of the evangelist department. I was one of them. Prophet Shante was one of them. We were just brother and sister back then. And we had to do presentations. Everybody had speaking presentations, but my presentation was visual. I had like an 80-page packet, all right? No, excuse me. I had a, uh, excuse me. I had 80 copies of my packet that I brought out because it was visual. I had, you know, 3D stuff. I had just colorful things. And man, people said they've never seen a presentation like that because I took the visuals of how I do architectural work and put that into the prophetic and apostolic teaching. Man, we had 80 copies. People wanted more. We had to get more copies, but people understood very clearly by the visuals. So when we get into our into those nine steps, we have to understand is that when you use the, the, the number nine, those nine methods, and they're not just nine, there's nine specific that she referred to today. When you kind of study and practice and develop your um, teaching, especially those who are believe they're being called to ministry or in leadership position or have to, you know, um, bring life and words to a staff or the people at large, use these nine precepts. When you use them, look how effective Christ's teaching was. He's been gone for from the earth in his physical 100% everyday form for over 2,000 years. And yet here it is, these teachings that he has is the most prolific teachings globally there's nowhere in the globe that people have zero knowledge of christ and his teachings acceptance is one thing but having knowledge for it is another so look at how our lives are blessed do not study fast you know get your life built on the solid rock of christ and the solid rock of christ is the teaching that he has given us. So Christ. in that, Christ and the church, or the ecclesia. So understand this. You know, here, here's a nice visual that Prophet Shante developed with Christ and the ecclesia connected. Stay connected with his real teachings. Stay connected with how he taught. Apply what he's taught into our lives, and you will have that dunamis power. People want power, power, power. Well, follow his teaching and you will see the power proceed you. Goodness and mercy shall follow us. But you should be endued from power on high. And you should do signs and wonders and miracles. But all of that work that happens in the earth is all centered around the principles of his teaching. You embrace them and you will be a powerful individual. So in that, we just want to close. We're probably closing a little early today. I'm going to close out in a beautiful in a prayer. Uh, so let's just go to the Lord right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the soundness of the word on today, O oh God, the fundamentals of teaching that you have given us and giving us the precepts of how Christ taught and how eternally effective his teachings have been. So, Father, help us all, every one of us who want to be a pastor or a leader, oh God, 
even those who, who may not have a ministry title or ministry call, but who are positioning themselves to do greater in their lives, oh Father, help us to continue to abide in the precepts that were taught today, Lord God. And Lord, those who don't even know you as, as Lord and Savior, Lord, we ask that those who would hear this message, who are hearing it now, and those who may hear replay or might have a friend who afford this message to them, Lord God, that they would take Christ is as their personal Savior and Lord and receive the Holy Spirit, Lord God. So your Holy Spirit will continue to dwell within us and to remind us and to guide us and to lead us and to nourish us in how Christ taught and what he once displayed and exemplified in the earth. So we thank you for this message today. We bless God for the messenger. And Lord, let the ears, those who have an ear to hear, let the hearing go into their heart and soul so that they can be stronger and more effective in teaching about Christ and his kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray and declare, amen and amen. So God bless you all. If you feel led to, we will mind if you give to our like PayPal and our cash app and all those things you will see those on the different screens but bless god teach study teach well and apply that power that god has given us into your lives so in that god bless you and have a continued blessed 14th of november which we're in another two weeks we'll have thanksgiving so give thanks to god for what he's taught us and how we can continue to go forth in teaching his will his way to the world amen Bless you and have a good night.